This is Backstory. I'm Brian Ballow. I'm Peter Ronoff. And I'm Ed Ayers. We're talking today about the tradition of American speechmaking, from our greatest presidents to our tiniest citizens. During the course of the last long and bloody war, Logan remained idle and advocate for peace. This is a speech said to have been delivered by a Mingo Indian named Logan in 1774, after a white frontiersman murdered his family. This has called on me for revenge. I have sought it. I have killed many. Within just a few years, Logan's speech had made its way into school textbooks and was being memorized and performed as a kind of recitation exercise. Logan never felt fear. He will not turn on his heel to save his life. Who is there to mourn for Logan? Not one. Years later, one magazine editor would write that no piece of composition ever did more, if so much, as the speech of Logan to form the mind and develop the latent energies of the youthful American orator. Though it may have been one of the earliest Indian speeches to make its way into American schoolrooms, it was hardly the only one. In fact, there was a whole genre of these speeches. Some were actually given by Indian leaders, and others were made up by magazine and textbook editors but they all shared a common core, pointing out the ways in which white people had wronged Indians by cheating and lying, by stealing land, by murdering innocents. Which raises the question, why on earth would white Americans celebrate speeches that focused on white treachery? I put the question to Carolyn Eastman, a historian who's written about oratory in early America. She explained that people then valued eloquence and found it in some unexpected places. Americans had very few oratorical leaders to look up to. Right. Uh, most of the early presidents were sort of notoriously bad speakers themselves. You're not talking about Thomas Jefferson, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I am indeed. <laughs> and I'm also speaking about George right. Washington. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. George Washington, a, a number of his speeches did circulate in school books and newspapers and so on. But um, he was a notoriously poor speaker. And it conflicted with... Americans' post-revolutionary sense of what was necessary in a republic. Mm -hmm. That is, Americans believed that what a republic required was a strong orator and leader to direct the republic, to to lead it forward. Well, to persuade. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Because it is a government based on the principle of consent, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And Carolyn, many observers of uh, Indian culture at treaties and so forth would would think that Indians were natural Republicans because they didn't have. They had chiefs maybe and early encounters. They were called kings and so forth. But there's no real nobility. In fact, all Indians are noble. That's the the noble savage idea, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, they come by something naturally that we need to achieve in our new Republican civilization. That's right. There were a number of admiring portrayals of Indian culture published at the time, portrayals that described these sort of perfect Republican scenes of a speaker getting up in front of a perfectly hushed audience Ooh. of fellow Indians within the tribe, speaking powerfully to a question of import, and then sitting down and allowing someone else to stand up and offer an opposing viewpoint. And those portrayals of a kind of perfect Republican society built on reason and persuasion 
Americans were quite envious of that kind of scene. And, and yeah, and, and let me just guess here. This is not what you would see in the usual uh, assembly. No. Of, uh, <laughs> that is of the legislatures of the new states or even Congress where we have the creme de la creme. You wouldn't get that kind of oratory, would you? No, you wouldn't. You would get a lot of back and forthing, a lot of anger, a lot of people needing to compromise, and a lot of rowdy audiences. I think that one of the things that Americans admired so much in these portray these idealized portrayals of Indian tribal mm-hmm, meetings mm-hmm. was the kind of perfectly hushed audience waiting and listening and considering what each speaker had to say yeah. and not being persuaded by a demagogue, but being persuaded by pure, beautiful Republican persuasion. Yeah, I'm still waiting for that kind of audience. Uh, we, yeah. <laughs> we hope that our listeners are like that. Uh, but there's another dimension to this, and we, we're still dancing around it. And that is you seem to be suggesting that feeling bad about doing terrible things to the Indians, it's part of what makes an American patriot. Uh, can you connect the dots for us? Why Why is it good to feel bad about yourself? This is something that, that affected me quite a bit when I was first looking at the documents. I couldn't figure out what it was about th- these very affecting lines in Indian speeches. You had... Indians saying things like, you call us brothers, but you treat us like beasts. Mm. You wish to trade with us that you may cheat us. You would give us peace, but you would take our lands and leave us nothing worth fighting for. Mm. These these lines are extremely direct. Mm -hmm. The censure is quite powerful. And I think that these speeches were productive of a kind of sense that Americans needed redemption. They needed to acknowledge their guilt uh-huh, and they uh-huh. needed to experience a shared sense that we we share this responsibility, but that we can be redeemed. We can make up our minds that we can do better in the future, that we have a responsibility to do right. better. So, Carolyn, in some ways, this sounds very much like the conversion narrative. That is, when, you, <laughs> yes. when you're born again, uh, is there a parallel then between this being born American, this is a new nation, uh, and uh, sloughing off the old man, the old Adam, the old sinner, that is uh, your provincial identity, now you're an American, and uh, part of that is this redemptive process you're talking about. I, I wondered about that. That is, is it possible that the speeches allowed Americans to think of themselves as being different from the British? Yes. Different in mm-hmm. terms of their capacity for redemption. Yeah, yeah. And I ultimately decided something slightly different. Oh, I like that. This... That was making sense to me. But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a way in which the speeches, at the same time that they offer the possibility for redemption— they also tell a different history for Americans. Mm-hmm. That is, rather than a history that begins with the kind of ferment and turmoil of the revolution, the moment when Americans decided to separate themselves from Britain after considering themselves Britons for decades. Right, of course. Instead, the Indian speeches told a different history. This was a history of a long period of shared guilt in which the revolution didn't really matter at all. Mm-hmm. The The history in the Indian speech terms was often told as 
when we were great and you were small. Yeah, and it was a story about the long history of American civilization. Yes. That is, mm-hmm. when, when the whites first arrived, they were weak and the Indians were strong and the Indians took care of the white people and mm-hmm. made sure that they were fed. But over time, there was a reversal of fortunes. All of a sudden, the Americans had become infinitely more powerful. The Indians had been weakened. And so there was this moment then for Americans to consider that perhaps their responsibility to the Indians uh, was reflective of that long history. They required that whites respond in kind, that they show the kind of kindness and responsibility to the now powerless that they once received when they came. Carolyn Eastman is a historian at Virginia Commonwealth University. Her book is called A Nation of Speechifiers, Making an American Public After the Revolution. 